You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning. If you have a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 1. We'll be in a few sections of Luke chapter 1. Mostly we'll be in the song Mary Sings that Kelsey just read for us. Uh, If you're new here, my name's Jamin. Welcome. I'm one of the pastors. We are grateful that you joined us. Uh, Today is, as has been said already a couple times, today's the first Sunday of Advent. Uh, Advent comes from a Latin word that means arrival. And what uh, I know a lot of people use the word Advent around this time of year. What Christians mean by the word Advent is uh, the advents of Jesus. Uh, What the Christian story believes, what we believe, what God has told us in his word is that uh, Jesus has two advents, one in the past, which is his birth and life and death and resurrection and ascension to the right hand of God. And the other advent is in the future. It's when Jesus comes in glory and makes everything right. And the advent season are the weeks that are leading up to and including Christmas. And it's a time when the church, not just us, and we didn't start this, Uh, But the church has, for thousands of years, uh, leaned into this time of the year, made space to remember that that we live, all of our lives are lived in between the two advents of Jesus. And, you know, I I spent a lot of my Christian life not uh, knowing or thinking about my life being lived between the two advents of Jesus. And so as I've thought about this and as I've taught about it, I I find illustrations helpful. And one of them goes like this, from November uh, 21st, 2007, to July 26th, 2008, my life was lived between two really significant events, one in the past and one in the future. On November 21st, 2007, I asked Carrie, who was my girlfriend at the time, I asked her to marry me. And uh, in, in thinking about this, I was trying to remember the exact date that I proposed to her, and I knew it was around Thanksgiving, but couldn't remember exactly when it was, and I thought, Carrie will remember, but if I ask, then she'll know that I forgot, um, which might be a problem, but she's forgiven me of, of so much more than that. So I, I was like, hey, babe, I know that I should know this, but what, what was the exact date that we got engaged? And she said, I don't know, you should check Facebook. And I thought, I can't believe you forgot, you know? So <clears throat> anyway, that's what I did. I checked Facebook. According to Facebook, on November 21st, 2007, I proposed to her. I proposed off of Lover's Lane in Dallas. I was 20. She was 21. We were both still in college. July 26th, 2008, uh, at 5 p.m., we got married at a Methodist church in New Braunfels, Texas, that had just beautiful stained glass windows in the sanctuary. And all of our family was there. It was a big deal for my family because I was the first uh, child to get married. It was a big deal for Carrie's family. She's the only girl in her family and in her extended family. She's the only girl of 11 grandkids. And so it was a big day. I was 21. She was 22. She was then done with college. And I was still very much not done with college. But in between November 26th and July 26th, sorry, in between November... See, I already forgot again. It was... uh, Anyway, in between sometime in November and July 26, 2008, my life was, was marked by a waiting in between these two events. But it's a, it's a unique kind of waiting, right? Uh, I was waiting in between, she had, I was waiting in between proposal and vows. She had said yes, and then soon both of us would say, 
I do. But why I think the illustration is helpful is there are all kinds of different seasons of waiting in our life, right? There's a kind of, of waiting that's scary, like waiting for test results. And in that kind of waiting, we're hoping something hasn't happened, right? Uh, there's a kind of waiting that's insecure. You have little control over, over the thing that you're waiting for. And it's a kind of waiting for something that may never happen. And then there's a kind of waiting that's just frustrating, right? Like a few days ago, I was sitting on an airplane, and we were sitting there, and it was supposed to take off 45 minutes ago, and, and we just continued to have to wait for something. So that was waiting for something that was already supposed to happen. But this in-between kind of waiting is, is a different kind of waiting. It's a waiting that looks back at something that has happened, and what has happened is inextricably linked to something that you're waiting for that will happen, and in between what has happened and what will happen, it's a kind of confident waiting. It's a kind of waiting where the thing I'm waiting for, I already have a little bit of. So uh, once the proposal happens, the relationship changes, and there's love there, and there's commitment there, but not the way there will be like when you stand on your wedding day. And so in between those two things, life, life changed a lot, right? I, I saved money for a honeymoon. I moved into an apartment in Dallas all alone. I worked three jobs. I read marriage books. I did premarital counseling and waited for the wedding. And so it was kind of active waiting, life between proposal and vows. Something had happened, something would happen, and my life was lived in between. And Christian, because of when you were born, you are in between two significant Christological events, one in the past and one in the future. And all of your life and all of my life are lived between those two events, the two advents of Jesus. Sometime in the first century, Jesus was born. God entered the world in the person of Jesus. He was born to Mary and Joseph. He grew up in Nazareth. He launched a ministry in Galilee. He taught. He healed. He loved. He was arrested and crucified in Jerusalem. He rose again in a garden outside of the city. He ascended into heaven as the death-defeating Lord of heaven and earth. He sent his spirit as our helper and our comforter, and he promises that he will return. Sometime in the future, that will happen. We do not know when. It's been thousands of years since Jesus ascended into heaven. But Peter reminds us that time does not work the same in heaven as it does on earth. A day with the Lord is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. But what will happen is Jesus will come back, God will make everything right, everything sad will be made untrue, and we will enjoy God forever. And we are in between. Something has happened. God entered the world in the person of Jesus. Something will happen. Jesus will return, and he'll bring everlasting peace and joy, and we are waiting. And we, you know, we talk about this often around here, not just Advent, but Advent is a season where we especially give our focus just to this reality. We are a waiting people. Um, it's not an empty waiting. It's not a, I hope this happens. It's not a, this was supposed to happen. It's not a, I wish I could control everything that happens. It's not that kind of waiting. It's a something has happened. And because something has happened, I can be confident that something will happen. And we already have a bit of what we're waiting for, forgiveness and love and God's presence, but not all of what we're waiting for. And so really, it's just a unique time to ask a question. How is your life going in the waiting? What does it look like as a people who look back at Jesus' first advent, look forward to his second advent? What does it look like to be faithful in that kind of waiting?
And we're going to answer that question over the next few weeks by looking at the lives and stories of people who were there for Jesus' first advent, specifically who were there for his birth. We get to see the advent of Jesus through their eyes, if you will. And they are a people like us who are an in-between people. All of them are a people like us who are awaiting people. And we can look at their lives and we can see where they were faithful and we can see what we can learn from them. So next week, we're going to look at Zechariah. In two weeks, we're going to look at Simeon and Anna. This morning, we're going to look at Mary, Jesus' mom. And we'll spend most of our time in the song that she sings in 46 to 55. But let's take a few steps back and remember her story together. Look at Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great. And he'll be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be, since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God, and behold, Your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, remember this, Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. The angel visits a young Jewish girl named Mary and tells her that she will be the mother of the Christ, God's anointed king. Mary is likely 15 years old at this point. Some say she's younger, some say she's a little older, but she's a teenager. Her hometown is Nazareth. Nazareth is a poor town. It's a couple of hundred uh, mostly religious people. She's a poor, lower-class 15-year-old girl living in a poor town. She's engaged to a carpenter named Joseph, who is older than her by at least five years, but probably more. And as an engaged couple, the way it worked in the first century in Jewish culture, they are legally married, but not yet ceremonially married. Here's what that means. The way it worked is you would get engaged And then the guy you were engaged to would build a house for you to move into. If you were poor, like they were, he would build a room onto his parents' house because living with your in-laws is every young girl's dream. And you wouldn't have uh, the wedding until that house was built or until that room was built. And so you were legally married but not yet fully married. And so that's Mary and Joseph. They did not live together. They had never had sex together, which is why you, you hear Mary bring up to the angel when, when she says that she is pregnant. She lives in Galilee, which is a region in Israel, and all of Israel at the time is under a brutal Roman occupation. A guy named Herod the Great is Rome's appointed king over that area, over all of Israel. His title is King of the Jews, and he is a violent, unstable, power-hungry 
tyrant. The older he got, the more insecure he got about his power, and the more insecure he got, the more violent he got. At the end of his life, he left a long list of people who he killed trying to protect his throne, and it included his own wives and a few of his own sons. He was a really awful person. To a 15-year-old, low-class woman living in a poor town that's occupied uh, by the Roman Empire, ruled by an insecure tyrant king, legally promised to a man she was not yet married to and had never been with into that world, an angel visits Mary and says, God is fulfilling his promises to his people, and he has chosen you to be the very vessel through which those promises literally come to life. Rebecca McLaughlin wrote a book called Jesus Through the Eyes of Women, and she has a wonderful chapter on Mary, and she says this. I found it helpful. The first person to hear the good news about Jesus was a low-income teenage girl from a podunk town. She was the first to find out Jesus' name, the first to know he was the Son of God, the first to realize that her son would be God's everlasting, death-defying king. This girl had the most common name of her day, a name belonging to one in five Jewish women of her time and place. She was just another Mary. But then an angel came to her, and in an instant, the backwater world of this small-town girl became the place where God stepped in. How does Mary respond to all of this? If you think about the context, maybe you just heard the history of her life for the first time. That's very disruptive. What the angel comes and tells her is very disruptive to her life. Being pregnant with the one whose kingdom has no end as an engaged virgin in a land where the current king killed his own sons. Her in-between life, her in-between the Advent's life was really complicated and really threatening and really scary. How does she respond? She sings. She goes to her cousin's house a few days away With her cousin, she verbally processes all that was happening, and eventually it comes out as worship. That's what 46 through 55 is. It's a song. She sings what one theologian called the most beautiful words in all of Scripture not spoken by Jesus. The faith. I think about this every time I read this. The faith of a 15-year-old. It's just so remarkable. She's not perfect. She's not perfect. The Bible is going to go on and tell us that she struggles and she misunderstands her son and has doubts about what God is doing. But this moment captured in her song, goodness, it's like this grace-infused blueprint for how to live faithfully in between the advents of Jesus, to how to live faithfully in this waiting life. She's waiting like us. Something has happened. Something would happen. She literally holds in her body some of what is to come in full. And in her waiting, she's faithful. So look, I've taught this passage every Advent for the past four Advents. And there's so much to say that I I just won't say this morning. Uh, But I I found myself approaching it a little bit differently this year. And maybe it's just where I'm at with the Lord, or maybe it's because of a heart I have for us, or maybe some sort of combination of both. But if this is an example of faith in the in-between life, what would it look like to let this song diagnose me a bit? What would it look like to let her words diagnose us a bit? Like if we were to hold her waiting song up against our waiting lives and just see where we are and ask God to show us where we need grace and where we need encouragement and where we need to repent. So I just want to do this. I just want to ask questions that come right out of the song that Jesus' mom sang in hopes that God would meet us and comfort us and challenge us and convict us. Here are three questions for us to consider. 
And genuinely, I, I don't know that I'll answer all of these. They're really just to lay before you for you to consider them. Who do you, or what do you rejoice in? Who are you to God? And has God done enough? As we live in between the advents of Jesus, as we are awaiting people who want to wait faithfully, what do you rejoice in? Who are you to God? Has God done enough? Look at verse 46 of chapter 1. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. What do you rejoice in? Mary begins her song and she repeats two ideas. The word soul and spirit capture the same um, reality. They're both used by Mary. They're both words that that are used to describe the immaterial part of a person, the deepest part of a person. So if you were to ask me, how am I doing? And if I were to tell you, my head hurts. And you were to say, oh, here's some medicine. And I'd say, thank you. Or you ask me, how am I doing? And I'm saying, my head hurts. And you say, oh, well, maybe you should drink less caffeine. And I would say, oh, you should mind your own business, right? But if you ask me, how am I doing? And I say, my soul hurts. If you're open to what comes next, that's just a deeper conversation, right? Um, Soul and spirit are words that capture the immaterial core part of who you are. It's a way to talk about the deepest part of who you are. Well, what does Mary say that the deepest part of who she is, what's it doing? My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. The deepest part of who she is is celebrating. She's so happy. And that says something about her heart. Hear me, friends. What you rejoice in is a window into what your soul loves. And what you rejoice in, especially what you rejoice in depending on what's going on in your life, it's a window into what your soul loves most. Think of how Mary could have started this song. This is the first line. She could have said, my soul is worried about what my family will think. The deepest part of me is worried about my family. My soul is freaking out a little bit about being a teenage mom to an eternal king. My soul is afraid of how Joseph will react. My soul is terrified of the suffering that surely she knew would come. And all of that's probably true. She loves her family. She loves Joseph. She loves her life more than all that. Deeper than all that, she loves her God. How do we know? Because that's what she does. She rejoices in her God. And so her soul could respond in a lot of different ways. It rejoices. And it's not empty. It's not naive. She's not looking at the world through some sort of rose-colored glasses. It's why later Paul will write, rejoice always. And again, I say rejoice. Because for the Christian whose deepest love is our Lord, if your deepest love is for God, it means you always have access to celebration and rejoicing. What do you rejoice in? Um, What do the things that you celebrate the things that most excite you, what does that reveal about your deepest loves in life? Look, friends, something that bothers me about my own heart is how little excitement there sometimes is for the things of the Lord. Because I can say that I love God most, but if I don't rejoice in the things of God, that means there's some sort of deficiency of love in my heart. Is it true for you? Just asking you to consider like, uh, we've been in here, it's 11.36, been in here for 36 minutes, most of us. Um, we have said plenty this morning that could stir rejoicing in your heart. Has that happened? 
We sang. I love our Christmas songs because I think some of the songs with the richest theology in worship history are these Christmas songs. We've said plenty this morning about the essential truths of the gospel. Jesus lived, he died, he rose, he will come again. Did your soul move at all to those truths? Did any part of you rejoice in any of that? And here's what's true. I'm not in any way trying to assume about us, not in any way trying to be condescending to us. But sometimes I just wonder if there is more excitement of the soul around trivial things than around eternal things. Like getting a raise, like getting that job, like getting a notification that somebody liked my post, like having an afternoon to myself, like my team winning a game, like that flattering thing that somebody says about me. Nothing wrong with being excited about those things. But is that disproportionate to the way your soul responds to the things that heaven celebrates? Your salvation, the mission of Jesus, the church that he loves, lives healed, God being worshipped, because something is wrong with our soul being more excitable to trivial things and sterile to the things of the Lord. Something is deeply wrong if we are entertained by what is temporal but bored with God. My only point here is to say, would you consider? I think the faith of Jesus' mom would invite us to ask, what do you rejoice in? And then would we follow our answer? Would we follow what we celebrate down to our soul and listen to what it tells us about what we love and meet, meet Jesus there? Meet Jesus there for comfort. Meet Jesus there for repentance. Meet Jesus there for the grace that we need to grow. Look at verse 48. For he has looked on. Remember that little phrase. It is packed with grace. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Who are you to God? What does Mary call herself in all of her song and all that she says? What does she say about her? She says so much about God. Goodness, she is a student of Scripture, a 15-year-old theologian. Much of her song lyrics are direct quotes from the Old Testament. She sounds just like Hannah when Hannah sings in 1 Samuel. She calls God my Lord and my Savior and mighty and holy and merciful and strong and compassionate and faithful. She sings the attributes of God. She has a biblically informed and an experientially confirmed theology of her God. She doesn't think he's cruel. She doesn't think he's a liar. She doesn't think he's impulsive or apathetic. She believes in the God of Abraham and Hannah and David and Esther. Who is God to her? Lord, Savior, mighty, merciful. Who is she to that God? He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. A few verses back, remember what she said to the angel? Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. She is God's loved servant. That's who she is to God. Uh, In this in-between life, who are you to God? Is that the identity that you would claim? Could you say like Mary sings, I am God's loved servant? Most of us struggle with at least one of those words, maybe both. 
Uh, Some of us hear the word servant and we bristle at that. The Bible tells us that in Christ we are a lot of things. The Bible speaks titles over us. Uh, Citizens of heaven, daughters and sons, friends of God, no longer slaves to sin. So servant's not the only identity that's given, but it is one of them. It is the one that Mary uses. We also hear Jesus claim this for himself. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And servant tells us something about us that is so easy to forget that we so need to remember. We are not the point. We're not God. Let me say it this way. You, friend, you were made for more than you. You know that? You were made for more than you. Advent reminds us, if it's about Jesus, what he has done in the past and what Jesus is going to do in the future, it means that we were born into the middle of something. And all of our stories begin in the middle of a larger story in which we're not the main character. We're supporting cast. Everything about our world right now and so much about our hearts right now are telling us that the only way to live is to take center stage. It's the only way to be free. It's the only way to be really alive, to build these little worlds that orient around us where we are in control and we are praised and we are served. And the reality is, is the more we try to live that life, the more miserable life is. G.K. Chesterton in his book, Orthodoxy, he says it like this, how much larger would your life be if yourself could become smaller in it? You would break out of this tiny and tawdry theater in which your own little plot is always being played and you would find yourself under a freer sky. What he is saying, if you believe this, it will change your life. How much larger would life be if you could become smaller in it? It Break out of this pride-constructed theater where I'm enslaved by my own little plot. Here's what it's saying. It's saying, when I try to make this world about me, when I think what will bring freedom is me at the very center and life orbiting and orienting around me, that actually makes me a slave because I'm not big enough to, anyone, to be anyone's God and so I'm a slave to my own limits and my own fears and my own inability to be all of the things that God is. I'm not good enough to be anyone's hero so then I'm a slave to my failures and frailty. Pride is going to say, I have to be the point. The servant says, I'm grateful to play my part. I'm grateful to play my part. That's what Mary says. It's a freedom not in being my own master, but a freedom in being a servant to a good God. And that's what Mary sings about. I'm his servant, and that's more than enough. Friend, you were made for more than you. You were made for God, where his being his servant means my life is not my own. My time and my dreams and my money and my relationships, they all serve the grand purpose of glorifying my God. And the servant doesn't ask, how can I be at the very center of all that? The servant asks, how can I make much of my God in all of that? And that's how Mary responds. That's how she sings. But see this, she's not a used servant or a forgotten, nameless, unknown servant. She says this, it's my favorite line in the whole song. He has looked upon. It's um, illustrative. She's literally saying, the face of God turned towards me. His eyes settled on me. It's deeply personal. One commentator translates it, he looks with love. And Mary's saying, God's loving eyes saw me, little old me, and it changed my life. Maybe one of the most important questions you can ask and answer in life is what does God see when he sees me? Uh, What kind of look 
does God give? What happens to God's face when he sees me? Is it a look of disgust? Is it a happy look? Is it a critical look? Is it an unsure look? What fills the face of God when he sees you? You know, we spend so much of our energy, many of us, controlling what other people see about us, trying to manage people's perception of us, putting a version of us out there that we believe is respectable and lovable. And many of us, we we do that because we know rejection. And so we feel this pressure to please others and be perfect. And, and, And we know what it feels like to have to offer that glittering image of us because that's the only one we believe is loved by others. But what about the eyes of God? Because God's not like other people. He doesn't just see what we offer. He sees what we hide. He knows all that we don't want other people to know. Every every version, the sinful, the prideful, the afraid, our best, our worst. What kind of look do you get from God, a God who has perfect sight? One of the things uh, I love about my wife is she is super expressive. Uh, Her her facial expressions are all just very pronounced. Um, She has no poker face at all. And you always know how she's feeling because her face gives it away. So when something bothers her, she looks bothered. And when she thinks something is funny, it's easy to tell. She's my favorite person to make laugh. Um, When something smells bad, she can't hide a look of disgust, right? Uh, When something means a lot to her, she's moved. When someone embarrasses themselves, when I embarrass myself, uh, her cringe face is just unmistakable. Right now, she's sitting in this service, and that is, that's her nervous face because she has no idea where this is going from here. Um, the other day, it's going to go well. Um, the other day, we were sitting together, and her phone lit up. She got a notification about something. And I couldn't see her phone, but I could see her. And she picked up her phone to see what it was, and the biggest smile filled her face. Not like a, a laugh smile but this deep, sincere, endearing look of love. Like whatever was on her phone got all of her heart, and you could see it on her face. And I knew what it was because I knew that look. A picture of one of our kids popped up on her phone, and it was from a few years ago. It was a really sweet memory. And I knew that face because only our children get that look from her. She loves them delights in them, and there is this unique way that that love and delight fills her face, and it's reserved for them. It's a look of love that is just theirs. Mary sings and says about the face of God, he has looked on me with love. My friend, would you fight to believe it? This is how God looks at you. What God sees when he sees you is he sees one that he loves. And it's not that he can't see fear and pride and sin. It's not that he sees the best version of you. He doesn't. He sees you as you are. But he looks in love because when he sees you, he sees Mary's son, Jesus, who before he was Mary's son was eternally loved by his heavenly father. And would you hear this? The delight that has held the eyes of God for all of eternity becomes yours. He looks at you the way he has always looked at Jesus. Jesus was born in a manger to die on a cross. He lived the kind of human life that perfectly pleased God. This is the gospel. And he died for all of the lives, mine and yours, that could never stand before the eyes of God 
so that we who put our faith and trust in Jesus could be made blameless in his sight. So when he looks at you, he sees Jesus. I just think the root of so many of our problems is that when we think of the eyes of God on our life, we see a scowl or a frown or clenched teeth or apathetic eyes. It's a lie. It's a lie. The truth is this, love fills his face when he looks at you. Goodness, an unmistakable smile reserved only for his children. He loves you. He looks in love on your life. Who are you to God? Your loved servant. Not God, not the point, but deeply and irrevocably loved. Look at verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm. As we read this, would you think about what's going on in Mary's life? Just the context. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Has God done enough? Some of the words that she sings are are just not completely true when she sings them. But she sings them as if they have already happened. Scattered the proud, filled the hungry, brought down the mighty. She sings all of that. And she sings it as if it's been completed. And then after this song, she's ostracized by her family. She would have been divorced by her husband had an angel not intervened. She was chased out of her home country by a jealous king who killed over 30 baby boys trying to kill hers. She sings that the mighty have been brought down from their thrones, and then she lives in exile for a few years because the mighty from their thrones are not only still on their thrones, but they're trying to kill her and her family. So here she is singing, the light of the world is in her womb, and a song of hope is in her mouth, but there's a lot of trouble still in her life. Things didn't get easier for her. How do we make sense of that? How do we make sense of of this for us? There's a lot of suffering in this room. Lots who have known loss and pain and disappointment. Lots who know it right now. All of us will know it at some point in our life. We live in a broken world, and there's this dissonance that can happen around the Christmas season, especially for Christians, because our, our cultural songs say things like, it's the most wonderful time of the year, but it might be the worst season of your life. Our scriptures celebrate the Prince of Peace, but our world is filled with war. Our younger generations are filled with anxiety. What do we do with that? Well, there's a a kind of story, a kind of hyper-spirituality, a kind of empty optimism, a kind of uh, empty promises version of Christianity that that can't say anything to that, that doesn't help with that at all. But that's not the real story. That's not the story the Bible tells. The story of Advent makes space for that tension because here's what Advent reminds us. This whole season reminds us that all will be made right, but not all is right right now because we're waiting. And Mary knew that. What I just find so remarkable, maybe what challenges me the most is she is so confident in what God has already done that she sings about the future as if it's already happened. He has helped. 
He has fulfilled his promises. He's brought down the mighty. He's fed the hungry. Sings that in a world where those things are partly true but not yet fully true. And here's what we need to hear, friends, as an in-between people. God has done something. God has not yet done everything. And a question we have to answer is, has he done enough? What I mean by that is, has he done enough for you to live faithfully in that in-between tension? I'm not asking a theological question because the answer is yes, he has done enough. Everything's in his timing. He's in control. I know that in my head. I know most of the room knows that in their head. I'm asking, has he done enough for you to look at whatever you're facing in the present, whatever difficulty, whatever disappointment? Has he done enough for you to face all that with the confidence that the God who will one day bring a perfect future is worth your worship and trust and love now because of what he has done for you and because he has been so very good to you. I need help here. These examples of those who've done this well help me. Mary had this long list of things that had gone wrong and could go wrong. She had a longer list of things that God had done for her and will do for her. It reminds me of a quote from Corey Tinboom, a Holocaust survivor, who said, Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. The most resilient, faithful, joyful people I know, many are in the room, are not those people whose lives have been filled with prosperity and ease, but people whose minds are filled with godly memories and whose hearts are filled with godly gratitude. And they keep a long list of God's goodness to them. They would say, God has done enough because he's given me breath and he's done enough because he's forgiven my sins and he's done enough because his face fills for love when he sees me and I get to enjoy the goodness that is still in his world and he's given me his word to read and know him and he's given me his church to belong to and follow Jesus with and on and on and he has done enough and this world is still waiting for him to do more but he has done enough for me to look and say, I trust that he is who he says he is and he will do what he's promised. We are an in-between people. As an in-between people, we are invited to rejoice in God as our deepest love and invited to remember who we are to God as his loved servants. And we are invited to remember to look back in faith at what he has done. He's done enough for us to look in the present and in the future and trust that he keeps his word. He is who he says he is. Let's take all of this to God in prayer. Father, we love you. We love you. I'll speak for me, God. I long, God, to live the kind of life that so believes in the advents of my Lord that he has come, that he will come again, that that reality just unmistakably comes out in the way that I love and hope and rejoice and grieve and share my faith and worship. And I need your help. Spirit of God, who is with us even now in mystery and truth, I need your help. 
I imagine these, my brothers and sisters, need your help. We need your help to follow our rejoicing down and, and maybe what we discover are disordered loves, something that has taken your place as the chief love of our life, and we need your help to seek grace. <coughs> oh, we need your help to remember who you've declared us to be. We need your help that when we think of you, God, that you would, whatever image we have, whatever we think fills your face, that God, what we would see clearly is an unmistakable smile from our heavenly Father on our lives because of our perfect brother, Jesus. And we need your help to let go of this, of this empty attempt to try to make this world orient around us. We're your servants, God. You're the hero. And we need your help believing that what you've done is not everything you will do, but you have done enough for our hearts to fill with trust in you, confidence in you, love for you. Help us. We need you. And Jesus, the Advent season is a time to pray what we pray always, but especially now. Would you come again, Lord Jesus? Do not tarry. We miss you. We need you. This tension that we feel living in between, it just immediately goes away the moment that you return. Once your feet walk again on this earth and your mouth declares again to your people, Oh, how easy it will be to believe that our Heavenly Father smiles at us when we can see a smile on your face for us, Jesus. So come, come. We need you. Amen.